where we've been in 1 Samuel. It's been a bit since we've been in 1 Samuel. I trust you'll remember that this uh, book of Scripture begins with the birth of Samuel from a womb that the Lord opened. And his mother's name was Hannah. And then, as the, the book proceeds, there is a comparison of Samuel's family and his sonship to that of Eli's family and his failures with his own sons. Several things begin to happen, but ultimately what we end up with is the appointment of Saul. Remember, the people rejected God, preferring a king like the nations and all that. But it begins to overlap with this promise of David. Much of the book is taken up with these circumstances. Saul, he knows that David is next, and he begins to obsess over it. So much so, children, do you remember this? Where Saul threw his spear at David. And eventually, David is going to go on the run. And that's kind of where we find ourselves this morning. David is basically making sure that the time is right to go on the run. Naturally, with him being on the run, the rest of the book, for the most part, will be taken up with Saul's pursuit of David. Are you familiar with the phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back? This is kind of like what our chapter is this morning. It's the last thing, more or less, that David needed to see before he finally made his decision to leave the court of Saul. So 1 Samuel chapter 20, printed there in your bulletin. It says, And David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father, that he seeketh my life? He said unto him, God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it to me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David swore moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he saith, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul, Jonathan, liveth, there is but a step between me and death. Then said Jonathan unto David, Whatsoever thy soul desireth, I will even do it for thee. And David said unto Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king at meat, at this great meal. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field unto the third day at even. If thy father at all misses me, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me that he might run to Bethlehem his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he say thus, it is well, thy servant shall have peace. But if he is very wroth, filled with anger, then be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, Jonathan, thou shalt deal kindly with thy servant, for thou hast brought thy servant into a covenant of the Lord with thee. Notwithstanding, if there be in me iniquity, slay me thyself. If I've done anything wrong, you kill me yourself, Jonathan. For why shouldest thou bring me to thy father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from thee. For if I knew certainly that evil were determined by my father to come upon thee, then would not I tell it thee? And said David to Jonathan, Who shall tell me 
Or what if thy father answer thee roughly? And David said unto, or Jonathan said unto David, Come, and let us go out into the field. And they went out, both of them, into the field. And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time, or the third day, and behold, if there be good towards David, and I then send not unto thee, and show it thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then I will show it to thee, and send thee away, that thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father. And thou shalt not only, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I die not, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not even when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again, because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon. Thou shalt be missed, because thy seat will be empty. And when thou hast stayed three days, then thou shalt go down quickly and come to the place where thou didst hide thyself when the business was in hand, and shalt remain by the stone easel. And I will shoot three arrows on the side thereof, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send a lad, saying, Go, find out the arrows. If I expressly say unto the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of thee, take them. Then come thou, for there is peace to thee, and no hurt as the Lord liveth. But if I say thus unto the young man, Behold, the arrows are beyond thee, and go thy way, for the Lord hath sent thee away. And as touching the matter which thou and I have spoken of, behold, the Lord be between thee and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon was come, the king sat him down to eat meat. Saul came to this feast of the new moon. And the king sat upon his seat, as at other times, even upon a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose. Abner sat by Paul's side, that is, he sat on one side, and David's place on the other side was empty. Nevertheless, Saul spake not anything that day, for he thought, something hath befallen him. He is not clean, surely he's not clean. And it came to pass on the morrow, which was the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said unto Jonathan his son, Wherefore cometh not the son of Jesse to meet to this feast, neither yesterday nor today? Why is he not here? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Let me go, I pray thee, for our family hath a sacrifice in the city. And my brother, he hath commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in thy eyes, let me get away, I pray thee, and see my brethren. Therefore, this is the reason, he cometh not unto the king's table. And Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou, Jonathan, shalt not be established nor thy kingdom. 
Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did eat no meat the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had done him shame. And it came to pass in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad with him. And he said unto his lad, Run, find out now the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad was come to the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond thee? Jonathan cried after the lad, Make speed, haste, stay not. And Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the lad knew not anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his artillery unto his lad and said unto him, Go carry them to the city. And as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. And they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord be between me and thee and between my seed and thy seed forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Amen. And from Romans 12, Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Living under wickedness it requires wisdom. That's true, isn't it? Living under wickedness requires wisdom. And when I say that, you don't need to immediately think about a wicked president, Supreme Court, or governor, though those positions and people are included, but you need to understand that this extends to the workplace and to the home as well. You can be under a wicked government, as you are right now. You can be under a wicked boss, as I'm sure some of you are right now as well, or have been. You can be married to a wicked spouse. Caveat, husbands, you are not under your wives, but when she lives wickedly, it can certainly feel that way. Wives, you can be married to a wicked man. 1 Peter 3 addresses how to go about that. 1 Peter also addresses how to live with wicked bosses at work. Children, 
You can live under parents that do not love the Lord. It's sad but true. And just because they bring you to church, that doesn't automatically make them godly parents, though it is a start. Parents, you can have a wicked adult child that basically seems to run or ruin not just your life, but that of the majority of your family as well. Now, even on an individual level, this can be true. You can, as an individual, allow yourself to be subject to your own wicked heart. And you don't have to be. I can't help it is never an excuse. Just as David does not stick around because in some sense he ought to, neither do you have to abide with your sinfulness. You're required to resist the devil with the promise that he will flee from you. But the question is being begged, what are you to do in times where you are subject to those, where you are under the rule of those or under the persuasion of those who are ungodly? I do not mean in the general sense where we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's ungodly in that sense. We're all wicked if you want to bring that up. What I'm talking about is those who lead like Saul has begun to lead. They are irrational. They act off of emotion. They lie. Maybe they're violent. They cheat you out of what's yours. They don't respect you. They manipulate you. And so the list goes on. And there are two things I want to draw your attention to that I believe will help you in making it through times where you are under wickedness. Making it through times where whoever is exercising control over you, whether rightly or wrongly, does so in an ungodly way. And those two things from 1 Samuel 20 are friendship and devotion to God's cause. Friendship and devotion to God's cause. Those two things will help you navigate under wicked leadership or wicked influence. So first, friendship. Friendship in this text is one of David's and Jonathan's saving graces. You know how close they are. We visited that in the past, and it's rehearsed again in this text. We talked about how some twist that, and as you probably picked up on at the end of the chapter, this is one of the texts that they point to. But the friendship that these two share provides them with shelter in the Lord from Saul. The friendship that David and Jonathan shared provided them with shelter in the Lord from Saul. You might draw back from this and say, Pastor, this is just God at work. Friendship is not part of the overall point. Well, this pastor would beg to differ. God can act without using means. He, he has the power to just, boom, accomplish things. But we know that he most often uses means. He uses things and people and relationships to accomplish his purposes. And when you see his purposes being accomplished through means... You ought to ask what those things are. It is David and Jonathan's friendship that not only puts them both in danger, but also functions as the means by which David, the Lord's soon-to-be king, is delivered. The chapter begins with their conversation around Jonathan discerning what his father Saul 
wants to do with David. And this is master craftsmanship here. They are going to create a context wherein Saul is going to be provoked. They're going to create a context wherein they know Saul is going to be provoked. They're going to try to make him angry. With him being provoked, they understand that his heart will be revealed. What he really thinks about David will be drawn out of his mouth from his heart. Maybe you've known situations like this. Believe it or not, it's actually a psychological tactic that can be quite useful. A methodical provoking of someone to see what is really going on. You push someone to the limit so that you'll learn what is really there. When people lose their temper, there are times when that reveals their true colors and shows what they are suppressing. And Saul is quite likely going to be embarrassed by David not being there. David is his musician, remember? He plays the harp for Saul to calm him down. He's also his right-hand man by whom the Lord accomplishes many victories for Saul's benefit and the people's. Even though Saul is overcome with jealousy of him, he is, for political sake, for saving face, supposed to treat David nicely in public. For those watching, again, Saul needs to play nice, even though he really wants him dead. And Jonathan knows. He, he understands how risky this is going to be. Evidently, he doesn't even trust his own father. Rightly so, right? But he reminds David of their covenant. If I'm going to do this for you, David, if I'm going to do what you ask, though I promised you, whatever you ask I would do, please remember your promise. And this is a bit like the way friends talk, isn't it? Quite frankly, it's a bit like prayer, where we remind God of his promises and entrust the results of our obedience to him. That is actually in the background, seeing that David foreshadows Christ, but we'll get to that in a moment. The tremendous love of David from Jonathan is noteworthy, and it is a love of friends. They love and trust one another. They are the best of friends. They are true comrades. David needs this information for the sake of his own life, and he knows that Jonathan can get it. And because Jonathan loves David, and he loves David's Lord, he's willing to do it. What David does is he strategically uses this friendship because God has given it to him. He strategically uses his friendship with Jonathan. He doesn't use Jonathan in a sinful sense. He's understanding the gifts that God has given him in their friendship and exercising it to its fullest benefit. David's trust of Jonathan and commitment to his promise to Jonathan's descendants shows their friendship. Jonathan's willingness to enter into this danger for David shows their friendship. It shows that they understood that they were under great wickedness and they had to get creative. They had to figure out something in order to move this process forward because the time to wait it out had passed. Their closeness enabled them not only to have a plan for the acquiring of information, but for its delivery 
as well. Children, this is probably your favorite part of the story where they have this scheme about shooting the arrows. And the arrows are going to relay what Jonathan learned to David. It would be through the shooting of some arrows into a field that Jonathan would communicate the results of their experiment to David. And as we read, you notice that Saul has been on to the two of them for quite some time. So I'd imagine that the secrecy in handling the information Jonathan received was so that no one but them would know, just in case, not even the lad, because he didn't even tell the lad, the young man who was with him to go get the arrows, he didn't tell him what was going on. He just shouted after he shot the arrows so that David would know. Now remember how I mentioned that those in authority who are overcome with a sinful heart will act irrational. Isn't that exactly how Saul is acting? He tries to play on Jonathan's potential for the throne by suggesting that David is a threat, as if there's going to be any other king but David very soon, as if Jonathan wants to go against God. And then in that same breath, Saul throws his javelin, his spear, at his own son, the height of irrationality. Son, David is going to put you to death so that you won't be the king. But let me put you to death first because I'm really worried about killing David. It's irrational. It makes no sense. Now, I need to take a moment to draw attention. I want you to think about a painful memory in your life where someone else's actions have embarrassed you. I don't mean a laughing embarrassment, but a shameful one. You know what I'm talking about. Where someone in your life who's close to you, you're in public, or maybe you're even in private and only your kids and family see, and you're embarrassed by their actions. And that shame comes over you. That is what Jonathan feels. He is so grieved by his father's behavior, by his father's conduct towards him, and the implications of that for David, that he doesn't eat the whole day. You know that kind of grief, right? Where you don't even want to eat. This is fasting, yes, but not the type that you willingly choose. It's the type where you're overcome with grief and embarrassment so much that you lose your appetite. That's what's going on with Jonathan. His dad's behavior ruined his appetite. Maybe you've known an instant like this in your own life. So that's the first tactic, friendship, to navigating under wickedness. The second one is devotion to God's cause. It is true that their friendship was the visible means by which Jonathan and David strategically carried out their plans to preserve David's life. But there's something underlying even this that you must not miss, and it actually ties the whole picture together. David and Jonathan were great friends, but they were also great men who served an even greater God. And it is God's greatness... And their commitment to God's cause, which is David's kingship, 
that propelled their action. This devotion to God's cause, this protecting David, the Lord's king-to-be, drove Jonathan to stand against his father. Remember, Saul knew their friendship. Saul knew that Jonathan was probably acting on David's behalf. He knew Jonathan would know where David was. But Jonathan knew that Saul knew that well. And yet he put his own life at risk for the Lord's sake. For his friend, but also for the sake of the Lord's cause. He had evidently counted the cost, was willing to carry the cross even unto death at the hands of his own father. Jonathan was to David simultaneously friend and servant, just as we Christians are to the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are simultaneously his friends and his servants. So it begs the question, devotion to God's cause, what risk are you willing to take or face for the Lord Jesus The true David, whose shadow is cast all over this passage. What risk, like Jonathan and David, are you willing to take for the Lord's cause? Service to David as God's king is service to Christ. So we are to see ourselves here in their relationship, but I would say primarily in Jonathan, when we look at this text from what I'll call a Christological angle. A Christological angle, an angle focused on Christ. You could say that we're looking at two different lessons of this text this morning. The first one being friendship is like a moral aspect, right? But the second one is a Christological aspect, one that highlights Jesus Christ and devotion to God's cause or God's servant, the Lord Jesus. With this second one, let us ask another question of ourselves. Where are you facing this type of wickedness in your life? We're all facing it with our government. Some of us are facing it at work. Some of us are facing it at home. Some even face it in the church, though Lord willing. I don't think we have that issue right now at Grace. There are different ways to work for righteousness in each of those places. Government, work, home. And I'm not going to belabor the points of each of those this morning for the sake of time, but I do want to make general suggestions related to each of them that might begin to jog your heart and mind toward a way forward. Because if we are under wicked leadership in any of those three spheres, we are in a situation similar to David, and we need to act similarly to David. We need to act strategically. We need to use our friendships. We need to be devoted to the Lord's cause above all else. So as it relates to the government, have you considered doing something different than what you've always done? You cannot act, think, do, or function towards the government as if it was 20 years ago. Heck, even as if it was five years ago. You can't do it. The world has legitimately changed. Change the way you interact with the system. Re-examine some things. Ask some questions. Make friends with those who seem to have a better understanding than you. How about in the workplace? 
Have you considered looking for another job? Ladies, have you considered leaving the workforce altogether if possible? Men, is your employer asking you to do things that you know are wrong, but you go along with it because the money is good? Do you have a friend, though, that stands up to those errors or someone who is courageous enough to have already left and you wish you had their courage? Befriend them. Notice their strategies. In the home, the Bible does not leave us in doubt as husbands and wives on how to respond to one another's ungodliness. 1 Peter 3, 1-6 is the wife's counsel. 1 Peter 3, 7 is the husband's. To summarize, women, you don't respond to wickedness with your mouth, but with your conduct. Men, you don't do it by treating her like a man, but treating her like a woman, knowing that the fruitfulness of your prayers depends upon it. To the both of you, befriend someone And I need to say this because it's 2023 and people are stupid. 2024 now. Befriend someone of the same sex. Don't seek marital help from someone who is of a different sex than you. It's stupid. Befriend someone who has a godly marriage and godly children. Not just one of those, but both. Children. This is hard to think of. And it hurts me to even say it. Children, little ones of Christ, be close to your siblings. If your mom or your dad or both are being ungodly, pray that God would give you someone that you can trust enough to tell them and ask for help. If it's mama just doing it, talk to daddy. If it's daddy just doing it, talk to mama. Maybe it'll be a grandma or a grandpa, maybe a Sunday school teacher, maybe your best friend's mom, whoever. If you ask the Lord to help you, he will. He cares about you too. He loves you dearly. The Lord Jesus himself was once a child like you, and he will guide you as well by his Spirit. And to all of us, I say that we must pray. Pray more in 2024 than you did in 2023. Pray that God would help you to see that your friends in Christ will help you live for him for another year. Your devotion to Christ will be shown not just how you manage to get by, but how you respond to wickedness. Sometimes being righteous requires strategy. Sometimes it requires strategy. Having friends will only help you in that because friendship, as I said earlier, provides shelter and help amidst wickedness. And one of the things that wicked rulers and wicked people hate most of all is when those whom they are mistreating have friends. The truth is there's not a Bible verse for everything. So you're not going to be given a full-on strategy of how to do it. You need those friends and those relationships to help you to function. So in praying, pray for courage. Pray that the love of Christ would compel you to stand for the truth in a way that is appropriate to your station, in a way that is biblical. Know that there will be risk 
just as there was for Jonathan. But also know that you serve a king greater than David, who has given you his spirit and will not, enable you, will not fail to enable you to live for his glory. Many have said something uh, to this effect, and I think it's very helpful. Because when we're under wickedness and we give into it, we fall into uh, refusing to act, basically. We don't do anything about it. If we were David and Jonathan, we would just get along to get along rather than making a strategy to do it. But here's the quote. Living by faith includes the call to something greater than cowardly self-preservation. Let me say it again. Living by faith includes the call to something greater than cowardly self-preservation. Because the reason we don't act under wickedness is because we're scared of the consequences. But consequences that come from acting godly are good. They are good. So I ask you, with friendship and with serving the Lord's cause, how far will you go to serve the Son of David? Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord in Christ, 